name is Chris. I'm part of Interchange, which community that's uh, in several countries. A few, about 130 of us, I think. And uh, my wife and I, Naomi and myself, are in East Harlem and Harlem, <coughs> Christian community called Interchange. Let's have the text up on the screen, because this is the uh, theme we're getting to is judgment, judge, do not judge. You know, we are judging when we decide what is right or what is good. But it's not that sort of judging that Jesus is talking about. But let's just pause and think about judging what is right, what is good, what is the truth. It's really hard work because many people have given up on deciding what is right or good or even the truth. Because most people say, aren't we in, a, in, in, in an irresolvable irreconcilable contest, always between competing versions. How can we judge what is right or good or true? And so many people today are living in what you could call a total uh, individual autonomy, like in a bubble. Living with boundless tolerance, because why would we presume to know what is right? Until, of course, somebody comes along who irritates us and steps over the line with their ridiculous beliefs, and then suddenly we become incredibly clear about what is right or good or true. So what a mess. We have this normal experience of being in boundless intolerance, boundless tolerance, and then we suddenly get irritated and we start to react. It's a complete mess. <clears throat> and the question, the question is really, well, who has the power to narrate our world? Who has the power to narrate the world that we live in? And we've been here before, because I was thinking as we were looking out over Union Theological Seminary next door, Dietrich Bonhoeffer experienced this in the 1930s, a long time ago, when he was studying there, a uh, German pastor, but he was over here studying for a brief time. And during that time, he was so frustrated in the 1930s by the way that Christians seemed to be able to pick and choose their way through what Jesus said. Christians would make up their own minds as to what was right or good or true. And during the time that he was here, Bonhoeffer had this really deep, what he called a conversion experience. He, he was a pastor, but he had to be converted into a deep association with Jesus, a deep commitment to Jesus, and especially through the reading of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He was, basically became a Christian all over again realizing that it wasn't for him to pick and choose what bits of Jesus he listened to. He wanted to be immersed in the Sermon on the Mount. He wanted to live the life of the Beatitudes. And it was out of that that he went back to Germany when it started to become obvious that the Nazi version of German life was becoming confident and it was going to be Adolf Hitler who was narrating reality. He wanted to go back when he could have stayed in New York. He went back in order to be part of the resistance, if you like. And he was going back not because he was an activist, but because he deeply was of the persuasion that everything, was, everything inside, inside of him was held together by the conviction that Jesus was the only person with the power to narrate the world. No Führer apart from Jesus. I want to ask us today, who has the power to narrate our reality? Who has the power to tell the story 
that we want to live by. Will you let me bring us to the feet of Jesus? Isn't that a familiar phrase? Bring us to the feet of Jesus who wants to call us to live a new life with new eyes, to love with new love, and to refuse war at great risk. It's like living a new world according to Jesus. Or we could choose to live a life narrated by whatever else is in fashion. But Jesus, as we meet him in the Sermon on the Mount, can be the core of our lives, even in a time of war. And that's what Bonhoeffer experienced all those years ago. So the life that Bonhoeffer lived out of sheer faithfulness to Jesus, it led him to doing what he described as throwing himself into the spokes of a wheel that was grinding people to death and literally committing the most obscene genocide. But he felt that his life in this world narrated by Jesus meant that he had to throw himself into the spokes of that wheel. And he wrote up his sermons. He went back to Germany and he created a, a, an underground seminary, Finkenwalder. And he preached for those two years from 33, uh, 35 to 37. He preached and he taught students the Sermon on the Mount. And he turned it into a book, which we know as the book of the cost of discipleship. But it was originally called Nachfolger, just discipleship. And interestingly, the, the word Nachfolger was being used by the Nazis to decide, to, to give people a vision of the future. So they were calling Nazi, Nazis were calling Germany to follow this vision of a horizon for the heroic, adventurous German. And they called it discipleship. And he, he wrote up his sermons as discipleship, but according to Jesus and the vision of Jesus alone, narrating the world that he wanted to be part of. So that was a long preamble to get to the point of saying, where are we this week? We've been following the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been saying it's not just a series of, uh, of inane, common-sense comments about how to live in the world and how to make the world a better place. It's about being grasped by the truth and reality of Jesus, even at a time of war. And we have these simple words, do not judge, which is not, as I've said, not about being endlessly tolerant. Do not judge. The words that Jesus says, do not judge, it's not about giving up on the meaning of truth or despairing of ever having a conclusive understanding of what is right or what is good. Do not judge is not about living in a bubble of your own self-consciousness and your own autonomy and having no views, because that's just a way of sending the rest of the world to hell. We have to love what is just. We have to know that what is true is able to be within our grasp. We have to know what is good. But it's tricky, isn't it, to be discriminating and to be discerning and not allow that to become an excuse to judge someone. And it is especially difficult, isn't it, when you're in a time of war, because what happens in a time of war is that everything becomes polarized. The West demonizes Putin, obviously. And war means that we must wage a campaign without the slightest sign of weakness. We cannot jeopardize things or dishonor the dead and those who've been maimed and traumatized by doing reflection, self-critical reflection. And some have said that back in 2008, 
or whenever, give, it, give or take two or three decades, we, the West, may have been naive or even greedy in allowing buffer states around the reduced version of Russia to line up and to join NATO because it was inevitably going to cause instability. But you know what? That type of self-critical reflection is just not appropriate, people say, in a time of war. So when Jesus says, do not judge, we respond, but Jesus, we're at war. The circumstances are so different. And I'm a pastor, I'm an ordained minister, and I, I wanted to really come down hard on the Christian leadership in the Russian Orthodox Church. I felt angry because currently 286 priests in the Russian Orthodox Church have felt they can sign a letter of opposition to the unprovoked war and invasion of Ukraine. But you know what? There are 40,000 priests in the Russian Orthodox Church. So I worked out that's 99.3% of the priests and the leaders of that church felt they could say nothing in opposition. And I was so indignant. But I'm with the safety of 4,500 miles, 4,500 miles of distance between us, and I have freedom of speech. And I remembered that seminary which Dietrich Bonhoeffer had gone back to start in Nazi Germany. And I remembered the story about how, even though he spent two years of his life dedicated to trying to raise up a whole cohort of pastors who would be in solidarity with the Jews and opposed to Hitler and not signing up to be conscripts, you know what happened? Most of those pastors that went through his seminary in that time ended up just being regular soldiers in the German Wehrmacht. And presumably Bonhoeffer was shattered and, dis in, and dismayed by how little effect the two years of formation had had on, on pastors in Germany that he was trying to make uh, like this, this alternative church that most of them would end up being just regular soldiers fighting for Hitler. But you know what happened? He kept on writing as a pastor and a companion to all of these students, even though they were caught and conflicted and they were so aware of their hypocrisy and they were so uh, frustrated with themselves for, for being party to this atrocity and the, the brutality of fighting for this Hitler. But he would not judge them. He would not give up on them. So I'm thinking to myself, if, if Bonhoeffer in the early years of the Second World War didn't cancel those people, then who am I to become all indignant from four and a half thousand miles away and want to cancel all those priests that won't sign a letter? Bonhoeffer would not waver. He was himself as you might know, executed for refusing the draft and aiding Jews. But neither did he cancel those people. He didn't damn people that he disagreed with. He was so close to those people. He was aware that his calling as a Christian was to be in their shoes and to get so close to them that he could understand how drastic it was for them to turn and face the, cons the constant harassment and the pressure to sign up. So Bonhoeffer is my witness at this time, and when I approach a text like Jesus saying, do not judge, I just think of him as my guide. 
you know what, to, to not judge, which Jesus is calling us to do, is to go through the door that has the words, be merciful over it. It's to go through the gate marked, be merciful. And it's not about simply being tolerant. It's, it's not about just being cheap and spineless and letting everyone else uh, do, the criticism, do the criticism and we stay mute. Because that's the way that we've allowed and permitted so much abuse in the world. You know, caring enough to confront makes us disruptive sometimes. It makes us have to say things that ruffles people's feathers. There's a really important element of confrontation that has to be part of our ministry and our presence in the world. But to, to judge in the sense of cancelling somebody, that is not an option. In Jesus' words, do not judge. We are not permitted to look at people and decide that they need to be so suppressed and so annihilated that we can't touch them anymore. Do we want to live in a world where that is the narrative, that Jesus gives us a narrative that says, do not judge, but go through the gate, which is called be merciful? Do we want to live in a world where Jesus says we are to be blessed as the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy? Well, it's the world where Jesus cries out, forgive them, at the very moment when the nails are being put through his wrists. And Jesus lived and breathed mercy. Jesus took the risk of living without judging people, without shaming people, without apparently having to win at all costs. And yet, so many of us would rather live in a world that wasn't like that. We'd rather live in a world where everyone we dislike and all with whom we strongly disagree can be seen as like the nail to take a swipe at especially in a time of war. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. You know what? To, to, to not judge is to engage with somebody. If you judge somebody, that can be cheap, and it can re recapitulate violence in just other forms. And think about the story that you might know of John in John chapter 8, of Jesus, when he is confronted with a woman who wants... They want him to stand up and declare her worthy of stoning to death. But Jesus drops to the ground to be on her level and to engage with her shamed and diminished place in the world that she was in. And he writes in the sand, you remember, as if to play for time until one after the other the people leave because they can't condemn her. And then he says to the woman, go and sin no more. But he says it, from the place of someone who is down on her level. So if you want to understand the meaning of do not judge, there's something there about saying engage. Can we see someone not as the perpetrator of intentional evil, but more as someone who is imprisoned in a cycle of violence and counter-violence? A few weeks ago, Stephen talked about Etty Hillesum. You might remember the story Etty was in concentration camps, and she was somebody who was murdered in Auschwitz in 1943. But before that, she wanted to engage, even with the people that were tormenting her. Because she believed that in an emergency situation of pain and terror, we are the ones who have to step out on God's behalf, as it were, and make it clear that God is alive. And she wanted to engage even 
seeing a camp guard as a confused and frightened young man pushed to the forefront of evil, she has to see the frightened young man behind the uniform that he wears. And she says, I see in him a prisoner as much as me. But he represents evil, doesn't he? Well, maybe. We don't have to be sentimental to say that both are in prison. So dare to live without the security of knowing how to hate people. Dare to live without the confidence of being somebody who is so quick to see people as incarnate evil. Take responsibility for another truth and reality becoming visible and experienced in our own lives. And even though we're tempted to shame people and blame people and swipe left and right with a big hammer, can we do this imaginative turn that Jesus is asking us to do to the kingdom? The kingdom not yet, but the kingdom which, if we're open to it, can start to become experienced through our lives in a load of different small ways. Even a world that is a world at war, we can live that version of it. We can take responsibility for engaging with the very people that we call enemies. We can walk through into a world underneath the gate that says, be merciful. So I want to end with this story that Raquel told me. She's a fellow interchange member of the community, and she was telling me this story, and it was really vivid, and it helps me to understand what it could look like to live a world narrated by Jesus, as I keep saying, a world which says the words, do not judge, and enter the gate called merciful. And I'll call the person in the story Amelia. Well, that's not her real name. So Raquel was saying that she met Amelia through Amelia's children and realized almost immediately that Amelia was an addict and that the life that she was leading as a young mother was really chaotic and messed up. And Raquel coped with that chaos of being her friend in the middle of all that, and in spite of so many opportunities to decide to pull back and stand off, she got engaged. She stuck with it. And this is how she says it went. A couple of years into our friendship, Raquel writes, my husband and I helped Amelia find an apartment, which was only a few blocks from our place, and we helped her move in. And we stopped by her new apartment the weekend after she moved and discovered that she had left her youngest girls and a couple of her adult daughter's kids alone without enough food while they left a party for the weekend. There was no adult present. I don't think there was any child older than 10 for the whole weekend. So Raquel and her husband took the children home, fed them, and asked Amelia to come and get them. And instead of being defensive, Amelia was receptive to our concerns. And this very difficult situation could have ended our friendship, but God was so gracious to help us to work it through. And we all realized that God intervened to keep the kids safe and to show us the healing and restoring work that God needed to do. Raquel and her husband, they did right. They knew what was right, but they did not judge. They didn't shame her or even seem to blame her. And Raquel says, how we parent our children, how our neighbors do parenting can give us opportunities to engage our neighbors and learn from them. Personally, pregnancy and parenting opened my eyes to the challenges and strengths of parenting in our community and also gave me authentic opportunities to learn from other mothers living there. 
Amelia already had five children by the time I met her. She worked hard and overcame many challenges to provide for the needs of her children. And even though we did not always agree or how to, on how to parent, she was and still is an encouragement to me in how I, as a mother, could love, serve, and exhort my children. Our children were very fortunate to have had the influence of people like Amelia in their lives. It took many times of studying the Word of God together, sharing what we were learning from God, praying for each other, ministering to others together, shedding many tears together, forgiving one another, for my relationship with Amelia to become stronger. We both grew in our faith. I learned humility and what it means to love. And Amelia became a woman who loves the Word and is a prayer warrior. She helped to lead our house church and modeled it servant, its servant heart and as a bold witness. And I continue to be inspired by Amelia's fight of faith, perseverance in suffering, deep love for the word of God, and her heartfelt prayers and perseverance in seeking people of peace. So that was Raquel's experience, when she could so easily have pulled back and judged, but she stayed engaged. And now Amelia lives in Texas, and she's working with a nonprofit and giving all her time to street homeless young people. But what it makes me realize is that this world of do not judge is an invitation from Jesus to enter through the gate marked be merciful. And it's a world where we can create like a chain reaction, perpetual reflexes of grace-filled, non-judgmental relationships. And it's an invitation that very few people take. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, but there are many who take that. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus says each of us can be a single-person peace movement in a world that knows only about hammers and nails. We can be a movement of Jesus, people who are committed to taking their lives into an area of risk-taking, non-judgmental empathy. And everyone who we cannot be bothered to empathize with, who can start to resemble the head of a nail to be slammed or hit, can become somebody that we engage with. It's an incredible risk to take that with our lives, to say that our lives can be lived that way. Jesus says, do not judge. And I want to pray that as we come and bring ourselves to Jesus through the, the meal that he called us to remember him by, that we'd understand that this is an invitation that we can say every time we get together, we're going to reaffirm it. I want us to think about the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross as being... The, the theme of suffering and love, which is the, the power that changes history. When Jesus goes to the cross and invites us to follow him there, it's saying you may not find that right is enforced by might. It may be that you have to give up apparent power and seem to fail and take the risk with me. You'll find one of these to be able to share the bread and the juice. <clears throat> Eric's going to distribute them.
Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his friends and he took bread as a symbol and emblem of his body. And he said, my body's going to be broken and the world will not understand me. Through the darkness, through the fire, through my wicked heart's desire, your 